Hello, and welcome back to Demonology uh, podcast. Not actual play podcast, not Witch's Workshop, but another Unmasked, which we haven't done in a while. Uh, this time we're not going to talk too much about the game, but we're going to talk a bit more about the real life setting around it. So we're going to be talking about some folk and ghost stories from the 16 to 1800s, spanning all of our Jacobean and uh, Victorian eras. And then we're going to um, uh, talk about a few sessions that have happened off camera, just with some of our friends. And, you know, it's just uh, the two of us here today. So I'm uh, Alex, and my pronouns are he, they. And I am Siobhan, and my pronouns are still he, him. So let's go about this uh, uh, rodeo. Sure, rodeo. Um, you've got some ghost and folk stories. I do indeed. I want to I wanna open up by talking about a publication called The Athenian Mercury. It was an advice column in 1690s London. Oh and as you can imagine, the advice was not very good. Writing later on, um, Cecil A. Moore, a critic, said of John Dunton, the publisher of Athenian Mercury, that it is a safe generalization that the further we penetrate the elaborate deceptions Dunton built up around his character and work, the more plainly it will appear that he deserves no attention whatever <laughs> as a creative writer. <laughs> 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 oh, have you got any examples of what people wrote in? Oh, this? oh yes, ab absolutely. I do. <laughs> uh, query. Why is my wall ticking? Is it death? <laughs> Have you got a clock? Is, is that something people had? What is that, really, which many people imaginarily fancy to be a death watch? The answer. Only a worm in the wall. And the reason it is called a death watch is it because it makes a noise just like a watch and is reported to come into a house only to foretell the immediate death of some person in it for which we see no more reason than for several other such, like, foolish omens. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, not your neighbour has a clock on that wall? Like... <laughs> no, no, it's it's a worm in the wall making a noise. It's not actually death. Calm down. We have um, this baby, dying baby, did a very strange thing. Uh, the, the querent, this account is what I have heard so credibly accepted that I can't doubt the truth of it. A child of 10 weeks old being taken with convulsions, the last fit it had, fit being capitalised because it's 17th century. Yeah, of course. Cried out distinctly three times, oh God, and immediately died. There were six people in the room. Two of them I know. Some of them were frightened that they fell into a swoon. I desire your thoughts of it. Wait, so 10, what, 10 month old baby? Yeah, goes, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, god, yeah. oh god, oh god, and dies. Yes. Yes, yes. Ah! <laughs> and the, the, the answer to that querent is generally along the lines of, we know of many instances where infants have died lifting up their hands and eyes and have smiled, although their age incapacitated them to the use of their hands or eyes, or to be affected with an external object that could raise a smile, which instances must necessarily have their rise from some internal agent. Perhaps their intellect might have a supernatural illumination to see their innocence and the happiness of the condition they were entering into, e.g. death. Uh, and this might <laughs> be in the case of the present instance, or else we shall offer this physical reason, 
When the soul is forced to leave the body, it exerted all its powers at once, to the highest degree it could, even beyond its... This part is unintelligible. Acting by proper organs, and in the strife forced that unusual instance, just so an extinguishing candle, when tis going out, rallies all its powers together. It emits one greater flame than it did all the time. It had nutriment enough to sustain it. So, dying baby uh, cries out for God three times. It's like a, a candle uh, burning real bright at the end, crying out for Jesus because it's going to heaven. And it knows that, and it's pleasing. <laughs> and one last story. Wait, hold on. Can, uh, go could on, you do, me, go on. Yeah, could yeah, you yeah. do me the favour of reading out the, um, or at least a part of the um, the review that um, slandered this response? Uh... Because because I have a suspicion, you know, you think that all of this language sounds exactly like the uh, the advice giver. You're just like, oh yes, that's just how they spoke back then. But I think there was a stark, stark <laughs> difference between the, like, morbid verbosity that is going on <laughs> with this advice column and the review... Uh, so, do you have? Do you still have that? I will. I, I will um, reveal the review uh, is from 1925. Okay. Thus, it is less verbose. <laughs> okay. I only read the last, the last sentence. <laughs> that last sentence was still six lines long, but because it's the early 20th century. Still, the way that people are writing in is is significantly less flowery than the uh... than the responses. Ooh. Oh yeah. Wait, yeah, right. yeah. What's this? What's this final one? Go on. And this, this, this final one is something that I had never, never heard said before, despite all of our work on 17th century. Uh, it is a belief about storks. Okay. Okay. And this belief about storks is that do storks hate monarchies and only hang out in commonwealths? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Whether it be true... That storks are never found but in commonwealths, whether they were never any in England but in Oliver Cromwell's days, and if any be found, into what country do they retire during the winter? This question has a four-part answer, which I will not read all of. Bloody hell. In fact, I shall only go to the very last paragraph as to what countries they retired to. We may answer of them as of the other Avis migratorie, or season birds, some have pleasantly enough thought that they go to the moon, or some of those distant bodies. Though most others shorten their journey a little and only send them to warmer climates. But for the precise place or region, Pliny tells us, tis not yet discovered. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm absolutely dumbfounded. By the idea that storks hate the monarchy. (laughs) 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 Apparently a weirdly widespread belief amongst just your average 17th century English person is that storks hate kings. That is... um, I I can't tell if that is coming from sort of like like anti-monarchic sentiment. That like people are like, oh, maybe the animals of the kingdom dislike our monarch, or if it's coming from, um, like, what are they doing? They don't love the monarch enough. <laughs> I love the monarch plenty. 
I've got his face printed on a mug. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> that is that is rabid bullshit that I wish I wish I was able to say that we've moved on from socially. <laughs> I I would not be surprised. I would not be surprised if I was reading tomorrow on Twitter somebody saying, mm, "Just thinking, stalks." <laughs> Uh, have you ever seen them rest in a in a country with a monarch? Historically speaking, I know there aren't many uh, actual mon- monarchic heads of state at the moment, but I'm speaking about figureheads. <laughs> <sighs> there is a direct there is a direct lineage between do storks hate kings? Two birds aren't real. Yeah, birds are drones. Birds are government drones. <laughs> It's weirdly opposite of like. Well, I I I, I guess like all birds are Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just uh, the taster. Oh those those are just simply some things that people thought might be might be true <laughs> in the mid seventeenth century. Unbelievable! Unbelievable! I have a a, a short tale from the late 17th century, The Tale of Whipping Tom. Okay. Uh, Whipping Tom uh, of, in 1861. Actually, let me read you the... Uh, a pamphlet about Whipping Tom from the time. His first adventure, as near as we can learn, was on a servant maid in New Street, this is in London, who being sent out to look for her master, as she was turning a corner, again, there are weird capital letters all over this. Which, you know, of course we have replicated in the fact that every single rule has a capital letter. Um, yes, yes. Which, which, you know, is just to add the verisimilitude of uh, um, uh, Jacobean and Victorian ways of uh, ways of writing. That's that's the only reason we did that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It's, it's, it, it, feels, it feels super weird. It's like, it's not even like a German thing. It's not even just for nouns. It's just for stuff. Mm-hmm. Just random stuff will be capitalised. Uh, perceived a tall man standing up against the wall as if he had been making water, but she had not passed far, but with great speed and violence seized her and in a trice, laying her across his knee, took up her linen and laid so hard upon her backside as made her cry out most piteously for help. The witch he no sooner perceiving to approach as she declares, then he vanished. Yes, a phantom spanker. I did, I, when I heard whipping, I didn't assume spanking at all. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, uh, he would wait in narrow and dimly lit alleys and courtyards and after approaching, he was, he was haunting Fleet Street, the Strand, Holborn. He would approach an accompanied woman, grab her strongly, lift her dress, and slap her on the buttocks. Um, sometimes would accompany his attacks by shouting "spanko" before running off. Unbelievable. Uh, there was great public outcry to the attacks, and women began carrying penknives, sharp bodkins, scissors, and the like. And male vigilantes would start dressing as women to try and catch Whipping Tom. Uh, in the end, a haberdasher from Holborn and his accomplice uh, were uh, were caught for the whippings, and, but because we now have no record of the trial, so we do still not know their names. And his accomplice. He need- yes. <clears throat> a woman who we, who we believe, uh, who they called Skipping Joan. Yes, a lady spanker. Uh, uh, good for her. Um, <laughs> it, 
really like incredible, incredible public response. Um, uh, good, good to see Quite. the community rallying together. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! There's something so extraordinary about it. imagining you're walking around just London, middle of 1681. You happen across a lone woman. You think she's in distress. You say. Oh, hello. Sorry, madam. And a man turns around with a knife and is like, are you him? Are you Tom? No, I, I thought you were in trouble. Thought... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Just a dock worker trussed up in his skirts turns to you with a blade. <laughs> I, I, I do enjoy the sort of like um, uh, uh, the, the, the quick and willingness for um, uh, your everyday gentleman to... Um, uh, Dress themselves up in uh, ladies' clothing. Do enjoy that. That's good. Mm-hmm. Big fan of that. Big fan of that. London is actually plagued by a series throughout the 16th, 17th to 18th century of not Jack the Ripper, not like murderers, but nuisances. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was Whipping Tom. There was the London monster who in the 18th century just went around pricking women with a, with a little needle and running off. Um, uh, and then there, of course, in the 18th century, there was Spring Hill Jack. Yes. Who, yes. um, we know mostly to be a man who was running about in a cape and little hat naked, jumping off of things. Oh my god. Oh, the, the hat makes it like you know. Yeah, yeah, because it's because he's not. If you were entirely naked, it would have a different feeling to mm. it. Oh, that's very enjoyable. Do you do you have do you have more? Oh, I I, I have one to finish. Okay, up. lovely. I have quite a quite a spooky one, a Scottish one. Very me. exciting. I have uh, the legend of the Hunderpressed, the vampire of Melrose Abbey. So Melrose is an abbey up in Scotland. It is also a place up in Scotland, apparently lovely for a holiday. I've never been. Doodling, which I fully know will mean that I have to edit out some um, typing. Mm. That's all right. Uh, the oh, yeah, it is lovely. And the abbey. Wow. It is. Yeah. Oh, I. Uh, the, 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 the the chapter house, which is thought to contain the the heart of King Robert the Bruce uh, in Melrose also. But that's not the story. <laughs> oh, I've got myself on um, uh, Norwegian Wikipedia. And um, I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> how did I do that? Um... Probably the image I clicked on is only on Norwegian Wikipedia. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, that's a weird spelling of Scotland. Uh, (laughs) Well, yeah. So I shall shall tell this entire tale, and then I shall... Then we can have a little chat about it. I shall tell a quick story from one of my sessions, Mm -hmm. and then we shall obviously artificially break for some time. A whole week. Yeah, 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 yeah. But for us, like 10 yeah, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Right, so there's an eerie story that tells of how the monks of Melrose Abbey saved the town from the dark spectre that had been plaguing the inhabitants for some time. The vampire of Melrose was, during his lifetime, a chaplain to a lady who lived nearby. The chaplain was fond of all manners of sin and vice. He was then nicknamed Hundprest, meaning dog priest. Now, this is, of course, Hundprest being said in a thick Scots accent that I can't mm. do. This appellation is given to him because of his favourite sport of hunting on horseback, followed by a small pack of howling hounds. In the story of the border marches, John Lang says, other things he also loved that made not for sanctity, and when at last he died, his death was no more holy than his selfish, sensual life had been. When he died, he paid the price for his wrongdoing, as his soul could not find peace. His ghastly form stalked the streets at night in search of blood, terrifying the locals. The townspeople turned to the church for solution to their plight, and the monks sought to answer their pleas. They prayed, fasted, and challenged the ghoul, eventually defeating it. The monster's corpse was thrust into a fire, reducing it to ashes, that were then carried by the wind over the Lamanmoor hills to the north on Scottish borders. Sometime after his death, it was said that he tried to enter Melrose Abbey at the dark of night in the form of a winged bat, and turning into a dark vampire creature. Through prayer and rituals against the devil, the monks of the Abbey were able to drive him away. After denied access, he would roam the grounds and cottage of a woman who in times past, when he was among the living, was in, was in his employ. It was reported by the near neighbours that the vampire roamed about the dwelling where he moaned and screeched to her and caused much alarm. Thus she had no choice to summon an elder monk from the abbey to investigate the disturbance and perform the rites of exorcism. The elder monk, who was summoned, brought along a fellow monk and two other men. Both novices began the investigation. No, Wilcox, I'm not just reading a demonology premise. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking you're either describing a, um, a, The Exorcist or... <laughs> uh, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they decided to watch the former priest's grave when, in rustic places, the last glimmer of daylight died away. During the monk's watch, the priest arrived in the guise of a vampire and appeared to levitate out of the deep grave, pushing gravestone asunder. The frightening phantom began to approach the trembling monks at an alarming rate. The priest retreated as he composed himself from the shock. He then lifted up his staff and smote the figure again and again. Then the elder monk retreated back to the grave. Then the grave suddenly opened with a terrible sound and the hunder priest was swallowed into its deep pit. After the grave had opened, developed the priest in the warm earth, it returned to normal as nothing had ever happened. The elder monk knew then that he was dealing with a true vampire. Immediately he took action. He told her to the companions of what occurred and to open the grave on the first light of the coming morn, which they agreed. They waited to the dark of the night and they dispatched one of the novices to bring tools to the abbey, which was used upon the cock of a crow. Upon the opening of the grave, the vampire priest was lying in his coffin, dead to the world, grinning with bloody lips the blood of his victims. Then the elder monk ordered his companions to remove the body and place it on the ground, then to burn it and scatter the ashes in the gusty winds. Today, there are those of the town that vow they still hear a muted scream through the ruins at the dark of the night of a man in different form, who in life had seemingly walked a godly life. Bloody and that hell. is the vampire priest of Melrose Abbey. Fucking hell. So, like, when when you were saying, like, he was, you know, wandering around the house, moaning at his, uh, um, his, his wife, was it? His, 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 his former employer. Former employer, okay, yeah. Um, his, when he was, you know, running around the house, moaning at his former employer, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, he was a vampire. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, But, you know... Uh, rising from his coffin. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's 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 much more vampiric. Yeah. Uh, shit. All right. <laughs> um. You know. You always wonder, like, you know, if if 
if you're trying to sell the idea of exorcisms to the general populace, what sort of stories you come up with to say, like, oh, yeah, we fought a vampire. Yeah, we fought a vampire, tooth and nail. And, like, it wasn't just an exorcism. They also, like, there was a brawl at one point where they just hit him with a staff over and over again. Love it. Like, yeah, no, genuinely does sound like, you know, that's that's a that's a mini scenario in demonology. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please, please, I, 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 I would, I would be so grateful if any of our listeners did then go off to write the scenario. Yeah, I would very much love to see it. I mean, uh, yeah, no, yeah, hmm. very good, very good. All right, um, should we talk about um? Some uh, tales from the void. Indeed, I have but one for you. It is a. It is a. It is a. It will feel very familiar. <laughs> it is. Uh, I've been with my own housemates playing the example scenario from the book Cresswell Cracks. Oh, fun to see how it's uh, held up in its new form. And something that happened to us the first time we played in Cresswell Crags also happened to them. Oh, okay. Oh, that's very exciting. I, <laughs> what, oh, what, I, yeah. No, I'm gonna um, play on my memory now and see what uh, uh see what I, rec- I can recall from uh, what feels like a very very long time ago. <laughs> oh yeah. The party is composed of Sir Richard Peppercock, an old Presidium Knight, Fanny Charge, a Druid, <laughs> Captain Pierre Deliquy. A rogue, brother Polydor Bane, a charlatan. Carry on up the demonology. <laughs> Carry on up the demonology. Richard Peppercock is a drunk, of course. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, go on. All right, what, what what do they get up to? Right, so it's session two. They are they are been investigating. They've returned. To the Pillar of Rock, their base of operations. It's it's it's, it's an inn in Bolsover, and uh, this is when Brother Polydor first arrived with the party. He met some artisans, confirmed uh, the story of a local huntress of having seen uh, a dark shape in the sky, and then the captain and uh, uh, Fanny arrived. Uh, now, now, when talking to the artisans, Polydor may have accidentally reveal, revealed that the devil may have something to do with all of this, and that panics them. <laughs> uh, n- now, in order to stamp down this panic, uh, the captain tried to convince the artisans that Brother Polydor was simply jesting. But he he failed in this, but he got a six. Yep. Okay. And so Is... he uh, the, the bargain that he took to put down his hysteria, uh, then immediately turned the day into night, raising hysteria double to what it would have been anyway. <laughs> Brother Polydor had to lead a furious prayer in that moment to, to to try and find some middle ground between the chaos they had caused in just three short steps. Yep. Yep. I, I remember very vividly that when we played for the first time being um, uh, a house plagued by dancing. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. But wait, something even more familiar happens. When they get up to Bolsover Castle. Oh, no. They're chatting. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. I know, I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> They're chatting with Lord Talbot, 
rather apologetic to Gabaga to try and perceive mm-hmm. books that might be of interest to them. At that moment, Bess of Hardwick enters the study of Lord Talbot and says, something has appeared in the kitchens. All the workers have run off and we don't know what's going on. Please come with me. Uh, led the party down to the kitchens where a skeleton oh, had delightful. appeared from simply nowhere and was ruining uh, the, the their epiphany dinner. Just, just tossing over turkeys and throwing around potatoes and waving about his sword. And just in our style, um, Sir Richard Peppercock was almost killed by the skeleton. <laughs> yeah, oh my god. Yeah, I know, I remember fully that skeleton actually doing some horrible bloody damage. Oh, oh yeah, they had a really unlucky role. The captain kept missing with his crossbow. Hang on, why is it that the only, like, deadly bloody combats I've ever seen are like one on one with a skeleton. <laughs> People underestimate the skeleton. Because uh, I had one in um, uh, uh, a, a scenario that I'm working on in Tintagel, where um, somebody found a skeleton down um, a flight of stairs um, and, like, slowly, like, climbing the stairs. Uh, 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 this is on the side of a cliff. Um, that was slowly climbing the stairs was sort of like shooting and like stabbing at this skeleton but it just kept fucking coming and just sort of like bloodily like they ended up just running um, we had that <laughs> with the skeleton in um, uh, uh, in Lord Talbot's um, and then I'm pretty sure there's been another one um, it might just be the fact that it's happened twice it's weird that it's happened twice that one skeleton because uh, Captain Peppercock was uh, so everyone was in a bad way from this fight because what happened is that bullets and arrows just kept whizzing through the skeleton <laughs> I am um, uh, not to double dip but like on sort of like the subject of repeating devil, devil's bargains I do remember that game that we played um, with in, indeed our illustrators uh, Digby and Izzy um, and uh, Nathaniel to a degree and uh, mm-hmm. also um, Oscar um, yeah. at different points uh, but mostly, mostly uh, Digby and Izzy where three times during the uh, whole scenario we took the same devil's bargain to set fire to a local church and it was just the mm. one poor guy <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, this was in Wales, of course. Yeah. The um, uh, uh, mischievous song. Um, poor Fallen Howl. Excellent character. <laughs> One of my favourite NPCs I've ever yeah. made. Brilliant man. I'm so I'm so glad we got rid of him. <laughs> but he was great. Ah, oh, yeah, great, great stuff. I'm very glad it's um, uh, repeating in exactly the same way. What I thought you were going to say is um because uh, what happened to Ashcroft Lane, who we saw last week. Um what happened to Ashcroft Lane in I don't remember if it was the same one, but a similar um uh uh, uh having a dinner for a um a conversation um or an audience. Um ended up with uh, uh everybody's food turning to ash in their mouths. That is one that I do love. I do love, I do love the all the food does X yeah. bargains. That's my message of song. 
women permission of a song. All mm. the food in that village sprang legs and ran yes, off. Yes, that was good fun. That was good and- fun. <laughs> I, I, do, I do love it when you discover a devil's bargain uh, and you <laughs> sort of like metagame know that it's not an issue because that's the six that you just rolled. But your character has to go like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, I see this. This is an issue. However, we're we're not going to deal with it too much because we think we're maybe responsible. But don't worry about that. <laughs> Sometimes these things happen. Um, it's sort of like the meta game that's still within the game because at this point, if an expeditor is experienced enough, they might be like, which we have seen a few times even in recordings. Now going, oh, I'm pretty sure we've done that mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Fab. Yeah. Um, so Fab, just a short one today, um, but uh, we'll have a short one next week as well, and then hopefully um, after that we will be back to our um, uh, Le Shannon Laura uh, for some more vicious, vicious combats. Um, oh yes. Yeah, I feel like it's just sort of like now fight of the week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yes, um, do come and uh, say hello to us at Demonology RPG. Uh, that's D A E Monology, um, I E Demonology RPG. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, we may, I might leave this in. I might not. We may soon be changing it to at Six Planes or Six Planes Gaming or something like that. In fact, our our company name. Yeah, yeah. How about that? Wild. Who knows? Uh, and we might have to be doing that because uh, we have another game in the works. Uh, don't worry about it! Oh. <laughs> it's fine! It's fine! It's fine. Um, uh, yes! Um, so, at Demonology RPG, or failing that, uh, 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 you'll find us in a few weeks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, uh, at Demonology, uh, Demonology at Gmail. Demonology RPG. Fucking hell. DemonologyRPG at gmail.com uh, if you want to email us, email us, pick, or uh, email us your own Victorian or Jacobean uh, stories. Oh, yes, please. Yeah, uh, we genuinely love that. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? If you do, we may share it in an episode, if I remember, or we find a good one. That'd be cool. I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. Uh, rate the podcast five stars, and thank you to Tasha Soffler and Oscar Russell, Tasha for the music, and Oscar for the graphic design. Find more of Oscar's stuff at Watchtower Design. Um, Vab, I think that's everything. I'm getting oh, yeah. the outro in my head, actually. Uh, I don't look at a piece of paper anymore. Oh? I just do that. Uh, which makes me feel like I'm getting it wrong every time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Fab, cool. Uh, thank you, and see you next time. Bye-bye! Bye!